Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Campfire Radio Theater. Campfire Radio Theater has been cooking up its own unique formula of nightmare fuel over the past nine years, utilizing a full cast of first-rate voice talent and cinematic sound design. This award-winning anthology of horror continues to provide sonic chills that harken back to a bygone era of radio, while wrapped in a thoroughly contemporary package as dynamic as a modern film soundtrack. Each episode is a full stereo production and quality earbuds are recommended. Most Campfire Radio Theater episodes are original tales written by producer John Ballantyne, but adaptations are featured as well from the likes of well-respected and varied authors like Joe R. Lansdale, Willis Cooper, Bill Gray, and H.G. Wells. Each story is soundscaped with immersive effects and scored by composer Kevin Hartnell. So, have a seat by the fire and listen to Campfire Radio Theater free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Westside Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. on Scars in Time. Approaching the 30th anniversary of the horrific events that marred her senior year of high school, Ash Littletree is beset by a trio of visions. The ghost of a young woman who might be the daughter she'd never had wandering her home, a startling introduction to a centuries-old painting, 
and a horrifying encounter with a doctor in a hospital elevator. Reeling from the onset of these delusions, Ash begins to feel she needs to return home to West Virginia. Though her wife, Darcy, doesn't first agree, it's all too apparent that a move is forthcoming. Scars in Time, Chapter 2 The Fire We left Boulder by the end of summer, but a lot happened before that. My job was easier to quit than Darcy's. Of course, you could barely call what I did a job at all. I was a spiritual babysitter to a bunch of kids who would never amount to anything in a field I was at least familiar with, if not a power player in. It sounds mean, but it's true. At best, there was one future hack amongst the group the girl who'd been reading the day of my visions. She had technical ability, which set her well and far apart from the others who fell into two camps. Kids filling a prerequisite for their degree and kids with honest aspirations at becoming a famous writer. The lot of them could barely string together whole sentences and I rarely made it deeper than a couple pages into any story before marking it a C and tossing it in with the others. The only real difference between the camps was that the future famous writers whined to the dean when you didn't give them an A. The others were fine with C's. The girl of the day of the visions, my star pupil, was a short, mousy thing with big eyes and an easy smile. She alone stayed behind on my last day to say goodbye to me, slipping from the puddled shadows of her already forgotten classmates to stand beside my desk. She smiled, and I realized I couldn't remember her name. Thanks for being such a good teacher, she said. I swirled my paper coffee cup and finished the dregs before looking at her. The girl was wearing what I had come to think of as the college basics. Yoga pants and a very loose sweatshirt with the neck and arms cut away. The straps of something thin and white crossed her single, exposed shoulder. I think I learned a lot. Well, if you did, that certainly wasn't any of my doing, I said, tossing the coffee cup in the nearest waste basket and getting to work on the stack of shit I'd buried in the desk all the professors shared in this classroom. I dug out a copy of my own book, which I'd brought and never brought up, and shoved it quickly into my bag. You're a better teacher than you think, she said, frowning and looking out the door to the streams of faceless students in the hall. Everybody here is too nice to help anybody get better. It's like trying to sharpen a knife with butter. I laughed, stalling over my flat brown courier bag with a handful of small grammar books I'd bought and forgotten to use for the class. (laughs) That's uh, actually pretty good, I said, looking at the girl. She was a tight little ball of something else, all of her skin and bones still in the right place and working fine. She had that thing in her eyes, which were a pale sort of brown, that you only see in young people her age. A wide-eyed sort of gravity that tried to pull you in. A magnetism created by their burgeoning adulthood and their need to be acknowledged by another adult they respected. 
Afternoon sunlight floated in to rest on her shoulders, giving her outline an almost golden glow. Thanks, she said, and she meant it. The whole word was a slow exhalation, the release of some tension she'd been holding on to for a long time. My small compliment had meant the world to her. She rummaged through her own bag, a dark blue Jansport backpack covered in pins and patches, and pulled free a small sheaf of paper. She handed it to me, and I noticed it was hard cardstock, the kind of paper you'd print a resume on if you were handing it to the president. It was a small snatch of prose titled Free Yourself that stretched maybe four pages with double spacing. I looked it over and then turned my eyes back to her. The room was very quiet now that the hallway noise had died down. She smiled, biting her lip. Uh, I'm not sure what this is, I said, turning the paper over in my hands. I'm just going to give everybody an A. You didn't have to do any extra work. I, I didn't, she said, quickly, rising on her toes some. It's, um, it's the story from a few months ago at the start of summer. You weren't feeling well and you had to leave, but you gave me a good grade on it. Oh, okay, I said, still not understanding. I, I know you didn't read it she said. I opened my mouth to say something, but she sort of popped on her toes again and clenched her fists tightly in front of her. And that's fine. I don't... I know it's probably hard to keep up with all this reading you have to do for your students, and, well, some of it's probably not very good. But I was wondering if you'd read that for me? I sighed and nodded and tucked the papers away in my courier bag along with all the other things I'd forgotten to do as a temporary teacher. The girl smiled at the papers going into the bag and then at me. Thank you, she said. I worked really hard on it. No problem, I said, feeling the hitch in my sentence where her forgotten name was supposed to go. She touched her hair by her ear and looked down. Coraline. She said, quietly. My name is Coraline. Well, Coraline, it was nice to meet you and teach you and, uh, all of that, I said, laughing at my own awkwardness. She joined in, slowly raising her eyes back up to mine. I could see her searching in them for something, something. It made me uncomfortable enough that I outstretched my hand like a robot filling the distance between us on the off chance she decided to try closing it herself. I don't know what gave me the feeling she might, but it was there, along with the tightening threads of air. That shimmering feeling in my skull was coming back for the first time since earlier that summer. My greatest fear wasn't that a student might come on to me or do something inappropriate, but rather that I might suddenly drift off into some sort of vision scaring this poor girl and embarrassing myself. She took my hand, in the end, looking at it for a long second before returning a firm handshake and smiling at me. There was nothing special about that contact, but her hand was especially warm and soft, almost familiar. Then she had me promise one last time I would read her little story and left me there in the classroom to finish cleaning up. 
I slipped the packet of papers she'd given me out of my courier bag for one last look and read over the first paragraph. What she'd given me wasn't something I didn't want, but that I wanted terribly. Something that hurt so bad it felt good that cleaned me off like a mud bath. And I knew it was all bad, what we were doing. But I liked it bad. I liked it because bad was what she liked, this new ghost. And so that's what we did. I frowned and reread it, slipping it back into my bag to keep from reading more. A few students from the next class had wandered into the room and were beginning to take their seats, half of them giving the unfamiliar woman by the teacher's desk odd looks as they got settled. The classroom was forfeit to me now, so I finished packing in a hurry and left. This podcast, so good you almost want to skin it and wear its bloody hide in the streets as a testament to your undying love? Then go to our merch store today at westsidefairytales.com slash merch and buy yourself a t-shirt. All proceeds go to support the show and our episode artist, Yui Breed Love, gets a percentage of every sale. So, if you like the Westside Fairy Tales and want to support us and the amazingly talented woman who makes the art, head on over to westsidefairytales.com slash merch and purchase a mug, a hat, a sweatshirt, or a t-shirt. Head over to westsidefairytales.com slash merch today. Thank you, and, as always, stay safe out there. Now, back to our program already in progress. I didn't leave campus right away. I never leave things the moment when I can or when I should. It's a weakness of mine. I go back or I linger. I'm my own sort of ghost in that way, haunting any place I visit. The classroom, as I said, was forfeit to me. And that's how I thought of it. Surrendered, a possibility gone, a door closed. I would never be a teacher of note. You might argue that's not the case that I made, at least, an impact on that young woman who spoke to me after class. She remained on my mind while I thought of little black doors swinging shut in the blue corridors of destiny, closing on glimpses of possibility. Perhaps that's what I resented about my students, what so drove me against their aspirations as writers. They all had potential. They could be anything. And being older now, I saw, when I turned around, a life of mistakes and pitfalls and lost opportunities. When I thought of my own mistakes and saw the little buds of failure in their work, I pictured the great trees of misery those buds would someday grow into. I, like every person who grows old, I suppose, thought only of what I might be doing if I were still young like them. I looked at myself in the windows I passed and route to my final destination on campus. The reflection was best when the interior of the window was dirty enough to catch the light 
At its worst, one window was clean. I could be mistaken for a woman of maybe 28, but only on the outside. A life of mostly healthy eating habits, light drinking and no smoking had left my skin fairly smooth and unlined. The symptoms of that scarring on my scalp had left me with my oddly young, oddly cruel face as well, so I had that going for me too, I guess. But inside, I was buckets of broken glass and old pipes rusted to uselessness. A series of loosely taped and badly smoking wires made up the space between my ears. I could write, occasionally. But even then, only paltry non-fictional essays. Impressions of things, ideas of things, reflections of things. The true power, the one I'd always wanted to wield, eluded me. Fiction. To be a god in a mortal body, twisting the wires of reality into something new and beautiful, something unlike anybody had ever seen before. That trick was like smoke between my fingers, seen and tasted and smelled and felt, but never grasped, never wholly there. Even though I knew, I knew that it should be. And I wondered my jealousy of these young people if there wasn't some admonition there some first soft touch of surrender perhaps perhaps not I walked into the art display where just a season ago I had wandered fully mad tripping on delusions of being 17 again and badly injured all those 30 years ago I had mistaken the blinding white sea of the doctor's surgical lamp made all the worse by my concussion, with death. What I had never told anybody was how at peace I had been with that self-diagnosis. I had been freed of everything, and all that awaited was absolution, I had thought. A slow bleed of my memory sphere, my soul, into the gentle and infinite fire around me. The most powerful of those memories were the newest, memories of the deaths of friends, the last of which I had murdered myself in cold blood. He was terribly, terribly hurt, and I pushed him off a cliff. He deserved it. That and worse, in fact. But that didn't change how badly it had hurt me to do it. Along with the memory of that monumental, if simple, act of violence were other memories of that boy. My first kiss just moments before which should have been sweet and awkward and funny and was, instead, wholly terrifying. It was a thing I recalled then with such stunning clarity I felt almost like it was still happening. The warm, honey sweetness of his skin touching mine, the rush of endorphins, the terrible tendrils of something dark within him, twining their way up every thin nerve in my lips and into the dense gray matter of my brain rooting there like fungus and flipping the switches to where he wanted them to be. I hadn't surrendered then to him. No, I'd fought with every ounce of my being to be away from him, hurting myself so badly in the ensuing chase that my future was indelibly altered, cheapened through trauma. Despite all of that, when I was finally faced with my own death, I'd opened myself fully to it, arms wide, I'd come to stand before the painting again, though it was now plenty familiar to me. 
I came to visit it often, like an old friend who's gotten himself stuck in the hospital. Its name was the Raft of the Medusa, and its father was a painter named Theodore Jericho, a man whose work and personal history I had become quite familiar with in the intervening months since I stood, jabbering like a madwoman, before his most well-known work. The painting had come to absorb me more than my own paid occupation, even more than my increasingly desperate need to flee Colorado for West Virginia. I stared at it, surrounded by his many other works that decorated the walls of the now-open exhibit. They were all present on loan from some museum in France, a gathered collection of Jericho's most famous works. They were mostly horses and military men, including wounded Curacer and the charging Chasseur, which had made him famous enough at a young age to pursue art as a full-time profession. Twenty, in fact, slightly older than I had been when Skull Crickets had started showing up on bestseller lists and making me prematurely famous. But Jericho hadn't allowed his passions to wane, as I had. He had followed Chasseur with a difficult and poorly received wounded Curacer just a couple years later. After that failure, he had risen to something greater. But let me describe for you this failure of a painting. There is a man holding a frightened horse by its reins, both of them descending an anonymous slope beneath a sky thick with black clouds. Both the man and the horse are terrified, but these are two types of terror. The primal fear of a simple-minded animal is present in the face of the horse. Its eyes are wide and blank, its chest broad with breath and a single hoof raised from the ground. This is a creature that would flee given the merest chance to do so, even if it doesn't know why. But the fear in the face of the man is intellectual, grounded, and therefore all the more compelling. Unlike the horse, held by the reins, almost tethered to sanity by them, the man's head is turned toward the rear and upward. His eyes show dread, the fear of knowing what is to come, what is at stake. He is looking in the opposite direction of the slope of descent. His eyes are upon the blackest part of the painting, the dark clouds thickening the sky overhead. His feet, scrambling for better purchase on the slope, are pointed to the single point of light in the bottom left corner of the painting. It is hard to tell if he is trying to stop himself, or rein in the horse, or losing his balance. And this is the most important part of the picture, that in this moment, it is impossible to tell which direction this man might be going, and that it is fear which has confused his path. This painting is called The Wounded Curacer, and the man bears no physical mark of injury. All of Jericho's paintings are like this, simple until you look deeper, until the lightness and darkness of the paint swirl and swallow you down into the throat of his understanding, his art. I am jealous of him and always will be. The only saving grace in my jealousy is that, despite dying more than 150 years before I was born, he once painted me. Before his death at the young age of 32... Jericho made a series of ten paintings of the insane. A gambling addict, a man who thought he was a police officer, even one of a woman who was simply insane. 
Of those ten pictures, the five that had survived history were on display on that somewhat cold and blustery afternoon. And of the five which had been lost, I am one. It was not something I knew that day, though I felt a tremendous pull toward those old pictures as I stood in that great, empty space. There were no other people in the exhibit, nobody else to share this last, peaceful moment with me. I will return to Jericho as this story continues, but in that moment, I thought I was leaving him for good, that I would never come across his paintings in any meaningful way again. Even then, of course, I had some suspicion that he would find his way into my writing, or that he would become the writing itself. I had tried to place words in his honor beneath that singular title on the empty digital page on my computer, Umbrellas Over the Abyss, but they had failed to come. I said my last goodbyes, committing as much of the true forms of these pictures as I could to memory, especially the Medusa. They were all in some form or another on my computer, but digital stills were nothing compared to being in a room with the originals. To have only the air between your eyes and the last gentle impressions of a master on this frail earth. I turned to leave and froze. At the opposite end of the gallery, standing before Jericho's insane woman, was a tall, skinny man in a moss-green wool suit. He stood with a cane, leaning heavily on the thing. Even with his clothing in the way, I could tell he was afflicted with some sort of terrible spinal condition. It twisted his hips at an angle that caused my own bones to ache and turned his left knee inward to an almost impossible degree, enough so that only the toe of his left shoe could touch the ground. I waited for the feel of the air twisting up around me, for the cables to slide inward, but they didn't. Nor did I feel the electricity dancing around the edges of my skull. I was nowhere but where I was, fully within the real. Still, this crooked stranger put me off, and I didn't want to be anywhere near him. So I started to leave. I made it as far as the door, when a sound like a wet gunshot startled me stiff. My head whipped toward the sound thinking for a moment that the man might have somehow damaged the painting, but that wasn't it. The painting was fine, and the man didn't seem to have moved. I shuddered. The raised heel of the man's left foot shivered for a brief second before snapping down to the ground, making a nasty pop that echoed through the otherwise quiet gallery. I took a step back, feeling a sympathetic ache in my ankle. The man's knee had popped back into place with that action, and I realized that his hips were now aligned properly as well. Then came another pop, and another, some accompanying motions I could see and others mysterious in their origins. I didn't bother with trying to find those. My eyes were focused only on his arms. The arms of his suit were shifting as though machinery of some unknown purpose was desperately trying to kick itself to life. Things like rods, both thin and thick, shifted beneath the cloth. I could hear them, too, crackling and gristly, the sound of their movement almost oily in my ears. Then his right hand descended, 
fingers creeping, crawling down the length of his cane. Oh, I heard myself say, not quite making it to God. He must have heard, because he turned toward me, or tried to at least. His neck seemed stuck, as though something had been jammed between the bones. I decided I'd seen enough and I left, turning and walking away as though I hadn't seen anything at all. Hoping, in fact, that I hadn't. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, Westsiders. Enjoying the program? Then hop on Twitter, Reddit, or your podcast app and let everybody know how great the Westside Fairy Tales is. Taking a few seconds to rate us, review us, or share our latest episode and your thoughts on it helps get fresh ears on our stories and lets us rise up from the dark and sweltering pits of the sub-top 100 rankings. I know you folks appreciate a good summoning, so why not bring this eldritch and unseen thing to the unwedding masses? Utter our black name before your friends, family, and co-workers, and then tag us so we can retweet or share it. We're at WS Fairy Tales on Twitter and Westside Fairy Tales on Facebook and Instagram. Click link tree in the episode description for a comprehensive list of our social media connections. You can also send us an email at westsidefairytales at gmail.com. If your inner circle of living people are too 
undeserving of the West Side Fairy Tales, you can join our little cult, the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club, on Facebook. We talk about the episodes, books we've been reading, horror news, and all sorts of stuff, so pop on by. Thanks again for listening to the West Side Fairy Tales, and don't forget to give us a review on your favorite podcasting app after this episode. Now, back to our program, already in progress. I pushed the vision of that crooked, cracking man down inside me where I could forget about him. I was, after all, not well and likely just seeing things. My greatest, if completely unfounded, fear was that Darcy would call off the move if she found out that I was about to start having episodes. She didn't much approve of my calling my waking nightmares and delusions visions. It was unscientific to her and she thought it might be dangerous for me to ascribe such a positive, neutral, in my mind, word to such a negative phenomenon. Still, she could tell I was dodging just that conversation while we were packing our things that night. Most everything was in boxes by then. The bulk of our belongings, in fact, were tucked away in shipping pods in some nearby warehouse. I'd imagined some futuristic ovoid things when the moving company we'd hired suggested using pods to move our stuff. I was disappointed when they'd shown up and been little more than boxes the size of small rooms. Darcy had fretted over this and that. Most of her nicest things were fairly fragile and, ironically, eminently replaceable. They were all valuable baubles. Vases and little statuettes and ceramics that she'd picked up on her travels. Mementos that made me sad every time I saw them, because of how oddly impersonal they were. It was something I'd tried to explain to Darcy before, only managing to offend her in the process. All of that stuff was just, well, stuff. Mementos from trips or meetings or gifts from this friend or that. All nice, all important but all somehow empty, like there wasn't anything inside all her little pieces of eight. When, eventually, we both died childless and left our things behind, all those would fetch a nice price and maybe end up on some other end table in some other house. But the story of the items would die and nobody would care. They would give the items their own story and then pass them on and the process would repeat. Death. Reclamation. Exaltation death. Over and over again, and all the wild little bits cracking away at the edges, small fragments falling away until nothing was left, until entropy crept in and swallowed all the perceived value. I had almost nothing of value in our relationship. I didn't like baubles or trinkets. Getting shoved inside and outside of mental health facilities had given me a paranoia for what Dickens had called portable property. Little things that people can just stick in their pockets and you're powerless to ever find again. A small ring your mother gave you that vanishes somewhere between checking in and out of a psych facility. 
A few neat little ceramic plates that go missing from your apartment while you're out of town on tour. The only thing I had of any real value was my laptop, which was essentially just an overpriced word processor and social media machine and almost useless to me in both respects. I couldn't write, and I avoided social media like the plague. My few fans and detractors most certainly thought I had an avid online presence, but in reality some young man that worked for my agent ran the account. What's up? Darcy said. I looked up to see her standing in the doorway, arms crossed. She was wearing the ugliest two pieces of clothing she owned, a paint-spattered blue sweatshirt with the arms shorn off, and a pair of kneeless sweatpants. The paint was dry, of course, and had been for the entire time I'd known Darcy, which is exactly how long she'd continued wearing that ugly-ass thing. Thinking, I said. I probably looked pathetic, sitting alone in my little office with only the light of the laptop in front of me to see by. The rooms around me had come to better represent the supposed writer who used it. The built-in shelves along both walls were bare, save for dust, clean spots showing where the books once were like the shadowed lines of memory. My desk was gone, replaced by a folding table we weren't planning on bringing with us, and an office chair already too damaged by age to survive the trip. Darcy was almost a silhouette against the relative light of the kitchen outside the door. About? she asked. I sighed. Ah, about dragging you halfway across the country to some hick mountain town on the off chance I might be able to write again if I'm there, I said. When I finished speaking... I looked to the blinking line in the blank page. I had written maybe 900 or so words earlier. Typing so quickly, the keys made that rainfall sound I loved so much. But by the time I finished, I was almost sick. Every sentence seemed marred by misplaced words. If what I had written was perfect or good or even passable, I couldn't see it. I decided I had become afflicted with some sort of spiritual dyslexia so I deleted everything. It's not a big deal, Darcy said, smiling. She left the door, and for a moment I felt the tugging in the air again, but it faded so quickly it was probably just my imagination, as though it wasn't already. She knelt beside my chair and held my hand in hers, smiling at me and kissing my forearm. I kissed her head in turn. It is too, I said. I looked at the blinding whiteness of the unspoiled digital page. If it had been honest-to-God paper I was using, I'd have gone through a ream already in pointless revisions and deletions. All that time wasted and I still didn't have a setting or a single character, much less anything like a plot. Darcy reached up and shut the laptop gently. The room went dark, leaving us in a pool of slanted light from the doorway. She kissed me and I kissed her, moving my way out of the chair and on top of her until we were laying tangled on the starchy office carpet. She wrapped her arms around me and I let my chin rest against her chest, under her chin. I was a small woman, and Darcy wasn't. She engulfed me entirely. We did what adults do, until I called time out on account of the carpet burning my knees. She admitted the same, 
She just hadn't wanted to ruin the moment. We both laughed at how stupid we were being and went to bed, fooled around more, and then fell asleep. I dreamed of my new home. I dreamed of the music of keys falling like thunder, rolling off every wooden surface around me. The sound was gentle and deep, filling. Thunder crackled outside the house and it was around midnight, I knew. Everybody was sleeping. They breathed in unison with the house, which groaned and swayed with the storm. Lightning flashes danced through the windows, and I could see red upholstery and black wood. Chairs with the coloring of a vampire's coffin set around a low table made of darkly patterned wood. Embers still glowed in the fireplace, the speckles of red and orange, the only thing I could see when the lightning wasn't striking. That and the soft yellow glow of a gas lantern at the top of the stairwell on my right. Despite having never been in this place, I walked with due certainty toward the light at the top of the stairs. I could hear the typewriter growing louder as I ascended. There was another sound beneath the steady, lettered strikes. A sick person, somewhere in the house, afflicted with a terrible cough. I'd never met anybody with tuberculosis, but from the severity of the cough, that's what I imagined the person might have. Maybe pneumonia. Either way, it was enough to make me hold my breath as I pushed myself up the stairs. And I did have to push myself. The climbing was terribly difficult, as though I were a hundred pounds heavier and much older than just forty-seven. I used the banister like a king, enjoying to a degree the feel of the old, worn wood beneath my fingers. I climbed to the second story and realized the sound was coming from higher in the house. I went to the third story, but still the sound was higher. The light of the gas lantern seemed to dim with every step. The third story, unlike the first and second, was smaller side to side. It was maybe a quarter the size of the lower floors and clearly meant only for storage. Bursts of lightning through the slatted ventilation windows on either side of the room showed a great collection of shapes. Angular and rounded things beneath drop cloths, sewing mannequins and heaps of boxes and crates. Even the gentle glimmer of dust motes catching on cobwebs appeared in the storm's flickering light. There was a fourth story above this, even smaller, almost completely empty. It was barely larger than my office at home, the floor comprised of uneven boards nailed diagonally over the supports, and, above this, was a tiny fifth-floor room. A garret, you'd call it, accessible only by a sort of combination ladder-stairwell that led up through a trap door. The trap door was open. A gas lantern shone from beyond. I climbed. The space I found was awash in yellow light, and suddenly I was 17 again, standing in a similar space in a dead, forgotten neighborhood in the woods near where I lived. And I was there, both there and in this darkly flickering dream house, watching my oldest friend wandering through the oddly shaped backyard to make some deal with the devil. 
I walked through the shared space of this garret and that other time-distant place and set my hand on the window where I could look down at him. At the time, I thought he might have been able to see me up there, and I had waved down to him. This time, I didn't even bother. Just watched those twisting, branching arms push out of the dark space in that great expanse of yard and gather him up. Then the vision ended, and I was staring at nothing but a wall of black, paint on glass, so thick the lightning from outside couldn't shine in through the windows, though I could still see the occasional flash through the trap door I'd left open. The sound of the typewriter, which had always been there but dimly, now flooded back into my mind. I turned and saw a person sitting at a desk. The clattering of the keys echoed my own increasingly frantic heartbeat. I felt like I had a fever. You need to shut that trap door, or you'll fall through it, the woman at the desk said. The unsteady light of the lantern beside her showed me a stack of typed pages on her right, and a thin remnant of fresh paper on her left. She stopped typing, and the sudden void of sound stole my breath away. You need to shut it, or you'll fall in. Do you understand? I opened my mouth to say something to her, but I couldn't speak. My voice didn't work in that space. She turned her head to me, only slightly, and I could see the net-like trace work of white hair on the back right side of her head. Then she moved her focus onto the typewriter, and the noise resumed. The desk and chair started slipping away from me, taking the light with it. Wait! I tried to scream after her. I could feel the boards beneath my feet tugging at my shoes as they stretched impossibly into the distance. Then they snapped, like sticky tack being pulled out from behind a poster on a wall, and I lost my balance. I stumbled in a half circle, almost falling into the open trapdoor behind me. My arms were shaking on either side of the square doorway. The typewriter sounds faded. I remained in an almost absolute darkness, staring down the length of the ladder to the impossibly distant floor below. The lightning down there was like an electrical storm now, as though the lower house sat in the midst of a dozen Tesla coils. I stood and grabbed the trap door, trying to pull it up and over to close it, when another noise grabbed my attention. Gasps. The moans of a woman in ecstasy. I looked up to see a new light in the shadows, a dull purple rectangle cast over a blank wall. I found a familiar desk, my old desk, now tucked away in some storage pod in a Colorado warehouse. But there it was, a woman's naked legs and feet showing from beneath it. It was a young woman, I saw, approaching slowly and taking care to avoid the trap door. There were no limits to the corridor leading me closer to this woman, but the space felt small and dangerous, as though any misstep might leave me bleeding, or worse. She was beautiful, I saw as I got closer, and familiar. It was my student, Coraline, the one who'd stopped me on my last day to hand me a story she'd been proud of. Now she was naked at my desk, staring at my computer and touching herself. Her right hand was working at her breast so hard it had to hurt. Her eyes were wide and blankly purple, 
bathed in the light coming from my laptop. She bit her lip and looked at me, shaking. You haven't read it yet, have you? She asked. Something black lay at the corner of her lip, too uneven to be a beauty mark. Her breathing was heavy. I couldn't look away from her. Best way to know someone is by reading their work, you know. Don't you want to be closer to me, teacher? I swallowed nervously, feeling my hand reaching up toward this wanton thing, this forbidden dream. Then I stopped, stepping back slightly. She shrugged. You're my favorite, you know, even though you don't write anymore, the girl said. The spot on her lip was growing. She moaned and her breathing cracked. She never stopped writhing, but she did begin to cough. The sound was disgusting, made all the more so by how she moved while she did it. A lump of something black came out of her mouth on the next cough, landing on her chest and then rolling to the ground. It left a dark, greasy smear on her skin. Stop. I tried to tell her, but I had no voice in that place. She grinned and bit harder at her begrimed lips. Something kicked in her chest, and I heard her breath bubbling in her lungs. The sound made me sick. I could help you start riding again, baby, she said. She stopped touching herself and leaned forward, grabbing both sides of my laptop and spinning it toward me. I'll show you. The purple blurred my vision, filled my skull until I could almost feel the bone splitting. I crushed my hands against the sides of my head, but I couldn't look away. I could feel the twists of air wrapping themselves around and inside of me dragging me closer. The computer buckled under some unseen force and a familiar electric waterfall poured from the screen. Sparks sputtered from the USB and charging ports. Black lines spread across the screen and the plastic overlay began to burn and curl. Fire smoldered in the thin wafers of silica and copper and an image formed, burning hotter and brighter until I was screaming then I was free of whatever was holding me and I stumbled away from the fire from the image of the girl beside it her face blackening from heat and her eyes glowing a dull purple she was smiling at me though grimly and then I was falling my toes struck just the edge of the trapdoor and then my leg was shuttling downward and dragging me along with it my skull cracked against the other side of the opening and I landed with a nasty crunch on the floor beneath my femur snapping like a twig. Darcy shook me. Ash! She screamed. Darcy shook me. I put my hand on her wrist. Ash! She screamed again. This time I woke up, blinking, coughing badly and barely able to breathe. A thin layer of smoke lay between my wife and I, but I could still see the redness in her eyes, a shirt over her mouth and nose. What's happening? I asked. I was coughing so bad when I spoke, I doubt she could understand anything I was saying. Either way, she got the gist of it. Get on the floor! She yelled, and I realized there was some great noise in our house. 
the repeated peal of an alarm, insistent and incessant. And also something else. A lower, more aggressive sound. A roar. Fire. Darcy didn't wait. She grabbed me by my shoulders and jerked me onto the bedroom floor. I suddenly found I could breathe, though not much easier. I looked up and saw a gentle blanket of smoke rolling just feet above me. Stay down and follow me, okay, babe? She said. Her eyes were terrified. I nodded and obeyed, crawling toward our front door on my hands and knees. I took only one second to look behind me during that low flight from my home of nearly a decade. The hallway between the kitchen and my office was gone. Only a tower of guttering, sucking flame remained eating at the walls, creeping along the carpet. And I imagined fingers of fire slowly pushing out of that wall of flames, as though it were a solid thing. Really, I saw this image squinting behind me as Darcy scuttled toward the front door. Hands and arms followed the fingers and then a figure was crawling across the carpet to me. It was her, the girl, the young woman. Though the fire all but obscured her features, I could see it was her dragging herself arm over arm toward me. Then she fell to ashes and I turned and fled as fast as I could, not even noticing the fresh abrasions I was tearing into my knees. The air outside was cool and remarkably fresh. We stood shoulder to shoulder, coughing and awkwardly waving to our neighbors as they flooded out onto the sidewalk. I silently thanked whatever god might listen that both Darcy and I didn't sleep naked. We had fresh changes of everything packed into the trunk of the car, but most of our traveling clothes were still in bags inside the house. As the fire spread, I thought of another house I'd seen burn. The one from the latter half of my nightmare, where I'd seen Michael creeping down into the thorn bushes at the back of that massive yard. After he'd died, I'd gone back with a backpack full of motor oil and burned the place to ashes, along with a couple acres of innocent, bystanding forest. That moment was the border between the life I now lived and the life I'd expected to live when I was still freshly seventeen. A life that had ended in pain and flames and frost. Are you okay, Ashley? Darcy asked. I smiled at her, thought about lying, and then didn't. I burst into tears and hugged her, and she hugged me back. I thought about the nightmare and considered telling her. But the firefighters arrived shortly after, and the night and that opportunity both slipped away. Coming up on Scars in Time. fire engulfs their home, it seems that Darcy and Ash are left without recourse to do anything but head for West Virginia. Are Ash's horrifying dreams a friendly warning or a poorly veiled threat about what awaits her? Next episode, 
Ash and Darcy drive across America to their new home in the remote mountain town of Guncotton. A misty, almost forgotten place full of its own odd ghosts, some of which have been waiting a long time to meet Ash Littletree. I hope you'll join us for Scars in Time, Episode 3, The Trip. And, as always, stay safe out there. West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2020, WSF Productions, LLC. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.